The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast. It's about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. For our first episode of 2020, we decided to get a Tennessee state lawmaker. Tennessee Representative Andrew Farmer from the 17th District in East Tennessee has been in the Tennessee General Assembly since 2012. He has a successful law practice by day, but for those hectic four months of the year when the session is going on, he's in Nashville several days a week representing the interests of parts of Sevier and Jefferson counties out in East Tennessee. When the 111th General Assembly reconvenes this week, he will resume his new role as chairman of the Criminal Justice Subcommittee, which is part of the Judiciary Committee. We caught up with Chairman Farmer on the phone from his office in Sevierville as he was getting ready to head off to Nashville for that session. We asked him a lot of questions about criminal justice reform and one very important question about Dolly Parton. We hope you enjoy. Chairman Farmer, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us before we get started where you are and and, uh, what you're getting ready to do. Well, I'm currently in Sevier County, Tennessee. I'm the state representative for the 17th district, and that's portions of Jefferson and Sevier counties. I'm going into my eighth year in the state legislature. And January 14th at noon, which is um, next Tuesday, we're going to start our second portion of our two-year session and uh, dive right in and, and, and get to work. Right. So and, and looking forward to, forward to doing that. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what you guys have uh, have in store for us this year. As um, folks know from what you just said and from from the introduction, uh, you are you're the chairman of the Criminal Justice Subcommittee. And last year, there was some restructuring of some of those committees, and your subcommittee exists under the Judiciary Committee, which is a new committee now in the House. And so, your job is to um, uh, uh, usher in bills uh, about criminal justice, which is why we wanted to talk to you. So um, tell us w- why they chose you and, and what makes you a good chairman of that subcommittee. Well, I think just well, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm uh, by trade, uh, I'm an attorney and uh, I practice and have experience in, in, in the courtroom and out of the courtroom with regards to uh, criminal defense. Um, I, I practice in juvenile court. I practice juvenile defense. Uh, I've uh, had a little civil experience on, on both sides, a little civil defense and civil litigation for the plaintiff's side. Uh, Speaker Hardwell was kind enough to place me as chairman of the Civil Justice Full Committee for two years. And then I was uh, actually before that, I was actually chairman of the Criminal Justice Subcommittee under Speaker Hardwell before I was appointed to Civil Justice Full Committee back when, when civil and criminal justice full committees were two separate committees. And then when Speaker Cassidy came in, he did create one full judiciary committee, and he broke those. Uh, he broke it down into four subsections of that, and one of those subsections is the criminal justice subsection. And I think the reason that uh, Speaker Cassidy had appointed me at that point in time, and uh, Speaker Sexton now has allowed me to stay where I am, is because of my experience in the courtroom with criminal defense. We have a great a chairman of the Civil Justice Committee, which is Chairman Mike Carter. 
Mike has a lot of civil justice experience and just a great leader and uh, of that committee and has just uh, uh, an amazing amount of knowledge, uh, actually more than I, mm-hmm. uh, in the yeah. civil justice world, being a you know former, former judge and, and on civil side. So I think that when those committees were divvied up, you know, all of that was taken into consideration. And I'm, I'm just happy to be where I am. I'm happy to be somewhere where I can serve and give, you know, members of the General Assembly inside of what it's like, you know, uh, working with our, uh, our, our prosecutors on the county and state levels, as well as our public defender's office on the county and state level, you know, in the, in the criminal court. Yeah. So uh, just happy to be there. And I think that's uh, pretty much sums up why I am where I am. And, yeah, kind and, of- I, and, I, and I like where I am. You're kind of uniquely qualified in having, you know, actually represented people and practiced in, in the criminal courts. People ask, and we have that in common, actually. Uh, you know, people ask me this a lot about when they learn that I do that kind of work. And so I'll ask you, you know, what, what surprises people the most uh, about um, when they learn about what you do or when they, you know, follow, shadow you or, or come to a court courthouse and watch a proceeding, a hearing or a trial? What, what surprises people the most in the courtrooms that you've practiced in? Well, I think just how real it is, you know, just, uh, when I started out, I had, when I first started my practice, you know, I had, I had, I started taking, I took appointed cases, uh, state appointed cases, as a matter of fact, and I got to a courtroom and I realized just how real, you know, it was, it was a big wake up for me to realize that, you know, some of the folks were in there just, you know, just making bad decisions. And of course, some folks have been making bad decisions for a long time. And the reasons behind that, you know, you asked me what surprises me the most, you know, is what people, some of the links people will go uh, to actually, you know, support a, their a drug habit, for example. That's probably one of the most surprising things to me is to see uh, folks that are addicted to, you know, opioids or, or meth or whatnot and what they would actually do and the links they would go to uh, feed that habit, whether it be, you know, on their kids' Xboxes, bicycles, steal from their parents, their, their wives, their mom, their dad, their jewelry and everything and just, how dependent and they are on those on that substance abuse yeah. issue. So really, that's what really surprised me the most is just the length yeah. that people would go see that happen. Yeah, you which, know? which speaks how addictive it is. Yeah, it speaks to the power of addiction, and um, and so and you know it, it's it also speaks to the ineffectiveness a lot of times of the, what the criminal justice system has to offer. So let's just jump right in. That you know the governor's reinvestment task force issued a report a few weeks ago, uh, and and you know it talks a lot about that very issue of addiction and and what uh, what we can do better uh, as a state for people who are struggling with addiction. What are your thoughts on on how we might incorporate that that concept that you just illustrated so clearly of of the power of addiction uh, in into a reform of this system that, that again, doesn't, unless we restructure it and, and provide more resources, doesn't really have the tools to deal with every person who comes into it who's addicted. Yeah, and I know this past, this past, in the 2019 session, I, I think there was roughly around $30 million that was allocated towards addiction services, uh, opioid, opioid addiction, whatnot. I think that, uh, you know, I've been working with uh, Judge Dwayne Sloan who actually recently just got the, the Ronquist Award up in, in Washington, D.C. He was the only judge and the judge in the United States that got that award, and that's the top award that the Supreme Court of the United States gives a judge. One of the reasons that they gave him that award was for his work uh, with addiction and substance abuse and neonatal asthma syndrome. It's something that uh, he and I have been working together 
on. Of course, he's the he's spearhead. He's led this. He's led this effort. But I was fortunate enough to be able to go with him. And uh, Dr. Lloyd used to be work for the mental health department for the state. Now uh, he actually got to go up to Cincinnati, Ohio. I guess it was about four years ago. It's for the judicial opioid summit up there in Cincinnati, and I, and I learned a lot about addiction. I learned a couple of things. I learned one that that you know just if an individual comes in comes in to the to the criminal justice system and then it just sent sent to jail for say eleven months, twenty nine days and they, they started that out at seventy five percent. You know, they're out nine months later. Well they're just probably gonna fall in right to the same crowd that they have been running with. And we know now that it takes the brain almost two years to reset itself from substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So when a person becomes addicted or dependent, it can happen two ways. It can come by by play or partying, or it can come by surgery because some people have become dependent. And just because somebody's addicted to opioids, we all got to remember, not every person that is addicted to these drugs became addicted because they're out drinking, drinking alcohol and smoking weed and just doing, doing things because they want to have a good time. Some of these people became addicted because they were prescribed right. these medications by licensed physicians. Okay, so fast forward. So now we understand that it takes the frontal lobe of the brain <clears throat> almost two years to reset itself, right? So, and, I, and I've learned that since the judicial conference. But, and we don't need, it's my opinion, that if we're going to place people, incarcerate folks, that once they're out, if they don't receive services, mental health services, while they're in custody, incarcerated, then we need to at least be able to provide them with some sort of wraparound services, mental health services, something so that they're not just going to circle back around and cost the taxpayers uh, millions of dollars. Right, right. And, and where does uh, and especially, especially, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, where does that come from? I mean, you know, because the criminal justice system is, you know, traditionally uh, kind of a one-trick pony, if you will. We, we build prisons and we do parole and we do some supervision in the community. But the yeah. kinds of things you're talking about come from different parts of state government and different different resources. So how do you incorporate them in? How do you see that happening as a policymaker? Well, I think we need, you know, I think we need folks to communicate with one another. You know, Department of Corrections needs to communicate very well and be very transparent with the uh, Department of Mental Health. You know, I think once those departments, those two departments work well together, and then once the legislature understands and the governor, obviously, I think, has a unique um, interest in understanding this and understanding the issues that we have with regards to the link between mental health issues, whether it be just a mental health issue or a mental health issue that may have been caused by a substance abuse issue. You know, I think there's two separate categories there. And I think at some point in time, we, when I say we, maybe state government, maybe some policymakers at some point in time within the last, you know, maybe decade and a half, maybe lost, lost focus on that and just said, hey, you know, we want to be tough on crime, so we're going to lock these people up, you know, and never really realized and really thought to think, well, hey, well, maybe there was a reason why they were acting in the way they did, whether it was a, mm-hmm. a violent offense or non-violent offense. So maybe we take these non-violent offenders and, and try to work with them. Now, now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that folks that do that commit crimes don't need to don't need to pay their price to society and be incarcerated. Right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you know, once we get past the first couple of layers of onion, and we educate ourselves. 
you know, be it I, us, the policymakers, mm-hmm. administration, you know, the, the the judicial branch of government, any any portion of the executive branch of government. You know, I think we'd kind of see that there's a correlation between, you know, what's going on and and what we do about it once once it's been done yeah. with these folks. Because I, I think that the recidivism rate could be greatly reduced if we could just maybe refocus some incarceration dollars on some rehabilitation dollars. Yeah, I, I agree. And and we're talking that's that's a great answer and thank you. We're talking some some great policy stuff. I want to back up a little bit and, and let's you know, let's pretend you're at a town hall meeting in your in your district uh, and one of your constituents asks this question and not not a guy like me who's a lawyer and a policy wonk and like yourself and uh, but that sure. constituent says you know he's reading maybe from the front of the executive summary of the governor's task force reinvestment reinvestment task force uh, report it starts by saying that you know over the past 10 years our incarceration rate has gone up 10%. This constituent knows that we spend a billion dollars on TDOC alone, and then we still have the fourth highest violent crime rate in the country. What are you doing, Representative Farmer, to help fix that? How are you going to go up there and to Nashville and, and make sure that we're spending the right amount of money and that my family's safe? What do you say to a constituent like that? Well, I'll tell that constituent one thing that, that there's the state of Tennessee is very, uh, it, it's, it's, you can't put a blanket on it. So there's different strokes for different folks in different parts of the state. So, for example, we're in Sevier County. I live in Sevier County. I represent Fortune Sevier and Jefferson County. So our issues are a little bit different than uh, a lot different than those, say, of, of our bigger cities like Knoxville, you know, Nashville, um, you know, over in, in Memphis and, and such. But uh, I'll tell them this. I'd say, I'd say we have, at least since I've been elected, we have we have taken the time. And we've held the hearings in committee to work to see what the issues are. And we've identified issues like substance abuse, like mental health. We've identified those issues that are causing people to act and react in the ways that cause them to end up in jail, cause them to commit crimes. Once we identify the problem, then we work to identify a solution for that problem and not just some knee-jerk reaction. You know, that's one thing we've been saying for the past two or three years. We're like, hey, look, we're not just going to do something and make some knee-jerk reaction because we just think right now that it's the right thing to do. We want to take our time. We want to see what the issue is. And if we want to find a solution for that issue. And right now, we're working very methodically and with a lot of different folks from across the state and across the country to look to see what other people are doing. And mostly other people are looking to see what we're doing to, to, to address these issues. And I'm very, very confident that we'll see our crime rate go down within the next the next five to ten years, in the next decade. I'm very, very confident that we will have identified the issues and addressed taken appropriate measures to address those issues. Right, right. Where, how how does the challenge of the size of Tennessee, especially you know, kind of our east west size? I mean, the problems in East Tennessee are are a little bit different from the problems in West Tennessee. You referenced that a second ago, um, and and so how does that create? specific challenges when you're when you're talking about legislation that can it can um, uh, introduce some of these these ideas that, that we that you just talked about you know now we know the problem we're, we're we're moving toward addressing the problem and that means legislation that means proposals well, how does the, the the diversity and size of Tennessee make that more difficult well I mean you're looking at a nine-hour drive from from <laughs> point from, from east to west here Um <laughs> That's a really good question, and I may not have I may not <laughs> no, have all the answers to it. I know, but you know, 
one of the problems I see is this, you know, you have your rural, your smaller counties that are just overwhelmed, especially up, you know, basically where, you know, very close to where my constituents are here, you know, in the, in the uh, northeastern portion of the state, uh, you know, north of, north of Knox County, we have a major opioid issue, you know, we've got, We've got the, the meth and the heroin and the fentanyl coming out of the coming out down from Detroit. There's a lot I've seen a lot of that here. You know, a lot of it's coming up from from Texas and, and out of Mexico and up through Florida, up that and that way up up into up into Memphis, you know, and I mm-hmm. and I think our our uh, highway patrolmen and our, our drug task force working with uh, the the FBI and those federal guys over there doing a great job identifying that, trying to stop these people. But the, to the answer to your question, you had asked me you know, what, what are the issues with that? The issues really I see is, you know, once we have, once we've all came together and said, okay, there's a problem, here's what we're going to do about it. So the governor says, okay, here's $30 million that we're going to address this. Well, how does that, how does those dollars, how do we allocate those dollars? You know, you've got the bigger cities, there's more people, there's more crime there, typically. But, you know, then you have these smaller rural areas and the courts and the smaller areas don't seem to have the after care or the resources, the wraparound resources that the larger cities do, you know, and I, and I'm not taking anything away from larger cities because I know, for example, Davidson County and probably Shelby County, they probably provide a lot of that funding themselves. That's but right. a lot of our smaller counties, you know, they just can't afford to do that, you know? So then it's, then it's a struggle between, well, you know, I'm I'm here to represent my constituents in Sevier and Jefferson counties versus, you know, Mike Stewart, you know, who I work with well across the aisle, saying, you know, hey farmer, I'm over here, I'm in I'm in Davidson County and I need to be sure that we receive our fair share of these, you know, these uh you know, these these dollars as well. So right. I think that's been somewhat of a struggle because it's just not a blanket stick. You know, yeah. we always you know, we're talking about the D E P right? And we're like, Okay, D E P dollars are going here, here and here. And you know, Sevier County is somewhat of an anomaly in that. We're like, well, we send down third or fourth most tax dollars to state. We get back third or fourth lease back. You know, what's going on? We're kind of an anomaly. So it's it's just it's just kind of a constant, you know, kind of a budgetary struggle there. But yeah. uh, I mean, everything. I, I think I think we're all just about every member of the Tennessee General Assembly, whether it be in the House or the Senate, understand and would probably agree that this is probably one of our top issues. Uh, of the day, yeah. Of this, you know, of this session. So, yeah, that, that's that's good to hear. And you you talked about uh, opioids in, in in that answer to that question. Is that the biggest challenge for for district, your district seventeen in, in uh, East Tennessee? Is that is that creating the biggest p- criminal justice problem for your your part of the state? Yeah, I was in. I've been in court two days this week in in criminal court in Sevier County, and uh, it is by far causing the most arrests. You know, there's been, um, uh, yeah, you're talking heroin, you're talking, you're just people, folks are in there. 90% of the folks that are incarcerated are incarcerated because they have a substance abuse issue. Right, right. Addiction. These are not dealers, right? These are people who are using themselves. Uh, these are, they, no, these are, these are, these are folks that, that are addicted. These are not your, not your, you know, these are not your, you know, in your car with, with, with five, you know, Five grams of meth. I mean, the, the feds do a pretty good job about, about picking the, the, the bigger fish out. But you know, these are these are real people struggling right. with addiction here in Jefferson County. 
that are in jail because they've shoplifted to try to try to uh, you know and and stolen something, vehicles, whatever, to to feed their habit. Yeah. Let me shift gears a little. This is this was actually not on my list of questions, and, and it's a it's a bit of a tricky question. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you to comment necessarily on on your position unless you just you just want to. But I think it, these days in Tennessee, we're talking about criminal justice. Um, we we have to talk about the death penalty. Tennessee resumed executions at a pretty uh, quick pace recently, and uh, since we're talking about criminal justice, right. I'm wondering if you know. Again, you can dive in as far as you want, but from your perspective, which is um, which is a, a very good perspective on this issue. Does the death penalty continue as it is for the for the foreseeable future in Tennessee? Is there any uh, sense that you have that, that the legislature might might do something to uh, alter the current the current pace? Uh, anything you're hearing or seeing from the governor that might indicate that it's a it's a pretty strange uh, uh, thing for a state to be doing these days. It's it's very different from most other states, which are slowing down, if not eliminating the death penalty. We're using it at a much much uh, uh, quicker pace. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, my first thought is, or my observation, I'd say, is that I don't see Tennessee uh, with any sort of uh, death penalty, with any sort of moving forward with any sort of death penalty reform at the moment. I'm not aware of any legislation that would have any sort of momentum that would that would change the process that we have. Um, uh, death penalty is something is the most serious, uh, you know, the most serious punishment that it could ever be conceived. I was actually watched a documentary on the the Salem witch, the witch trials, just on I think it was Sunday morning on on the Discovery Channel, and then it was just you know just to see how of course that was you know were colonies and they they just kind of fast, they really fast forward thing. They hung about nineteen people back in 1692, I believe it was, right. but. Uh, but I think Tennessee, you know, we, there's, it, it, we, our process is a fair and due process. I will say that because if an individual is going to be charged with a capital offense and convicted of that capital offense, then there, there are countless, there are countless stages of that years, years and years, potentially years and years of stages of, of appeal after appeal, due process, appeal, due process, appeal. So, I think the process that we have is a fair process um, in Tennessee, and I just don't see any movement to change that process yeah, at, the, at this point. At the same time, and, and push it a little bit on that, you know, last year there was a bill that removed sure. one level of appellate uh, review from capital cases. How does that fit into your description of, of the fair and just process if we're taking a level of review out? And, and I don't know if you recall that bill or, or even can speak to it, but if you can, does that, how does that square with what you just said? Was that, and then I'm thinking back and it was that where the, we took away the one of the, either the, the court of yeah, criminal appeals right, and right. or the Supreme court, uh, the, uh, check and back, the checks and balance review there. It took out, Court of Criminal Appeals review, and, and I think capital cases now go f- straight to straight to the Supreme Court. That's right. That's right. And I think I think that was just basically that they were, and I, I don't want to speak to it as much as I, I wasn't the sponsor of that piece of legislation. Uh, I do. We had a quite a bit of, of discussion and conversation about that. But the reason I was able to support that move and that transition there was that it was my understanding at that level of review 
that it was just very duplicative, very, very duplicative, and that the Supreme Court had the ultimate say-so with regards to the outcome of that, reviewing this, the same facts and set of circumstances that would have been reviewed by the appellate courts. Right. So um, that's, that's what, that was my understanding yeah. of the legislation and the reason behind the legislation. You also have um, a, a correct. We also have a corrections subcommittee, um, and you're on that subcommittee, correct? I am. Yeah, and and so that um, presumably, you know, deals with issues in in and around prisons, and and one of the the topics that often comes up when we're talking about reform is the state's relationship with Core Civic, formerly Corrections Corporation of America. And I know they had some hearings. I believe it was over the middle between sessions. Um, a year or two ago uh, about this. And there were some pretty irate, you had some pretty irate colleagues from both sides of the aisle up there talking about uh, some of the conditions in some of the privately run prisons. Um, what do you see in the future in Tennessee with that relationship, the one between the state and core civic? Is that something that you you have a position on or any any legislative ideas uh, about how to, um, to remedy that uh, that rift that has kind of developed recently? Well, I, I'm not. I wasn't a big fan on privatization of our of our of our jails and having our some state employees being let go and or removed from their jobs. I know we're having some. There are some major issues over here at Mountain View uh, youth, juvenile youth facility. I know there's been some things go on. I don't know that uh, I'm real pleased by their uh, operation of that facility. That's something that I'm absolutely going to look into this year. And if I can, I'm going to uh, try to ask Chairman Curcio of the full Judiciary Committee if he'd allow me to hold some hearings uh, to investigate, to see what's been going on, how things are going, uh, if they're able to provide the mental health services for those uh, detainees. You know, what, what's going on in there? How, how, how are these, how are these, how's, how's this, how, these, how are these folks running our jails? How are our jails doing? Are they doing better or are they doing worse? You know, what's going on? I want to I want to get into that, and because it's been it's been what now? It'll be the third year they've been involved, right? Year three, uh, Core Civic in that yes. in that facility. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, they've been they've had prisons okay. for the state for a long time, and it's just it's just sort of yeah. bu- bubbled up recently. And I, I'm not familiar with all the okay. local facilities that they operate or youth facilities okay. that they operate, but. Um, oversight is what I hear you saying, right? You, we need to have you guys, the ones who are, you know, responsible for the budgets that, that pay that, that contract need to have more, uh, meaningful oversight so you can measure whether they're doing a better job or not. I mean, the idea is, you know, private industry can, can do this more efficiently. I don't, I think we've seen that that's not, not the case in, in this particular instance. And, and so is that, is that right? What I hear you saying is oversight. You guys need to know more. Yeah, and I, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oversight, we need to know more. We need to know the details. I don't want, you know, I don't want just a bullet point of, hey, here's what's going on. I want to see results. I want to see numbers, and I want to see, I want to know exactly what's going on in our jails and prisons to see if they've been ran properly. Right. That's exactly what I want to see. Do you think that we've left out uh, people who have actually spent time in those jails and prisons, uh, uh, left them out of this conversation uh, to our to our detriment? Do, do you agree with that? I would agree that we need to speak to those folks to ask about their experiences. I think that would be helpful. 
I think that'd be very helpful, as a matter of fact. So I, I would agree yeah. with you. I recall I was at one of those hearings about, I, I'm not still picking on Core Civic necessarily, but one of the one of the witnesses testifying about her experience in, in one of their facilities. And that's when the lawmakers, your colleagues, got the most upset. And I think um, I, I wish we did hear more. Uh, from folks who've had the experience of being incarcerated, I think that would help us do our jobs better. Uh, well, I, of I, it so I'm sorry. I said, of course it would. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I do, I do, I've taken a little bit of your time. I know you're getting ready to leave uh, the office uh, to go to Nashville in a few days to be real busy over the next four months. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we haven't talked really a whole lot about about you and about Sevier and Jefferson counties and District 17. What's uh, uh, what keeps you busy when you're not practicing law or, or driving back and forth to Nashville uh, up there in, in Sevierville? My my beautiful family. I've got a, I've got a beautiful wife, Mariah. And uh, I have two daughters. I have uh, Caitlin, who's who's going to be seven at the end of February, and, and Chloe, who is a, a junior at East Tennessee State University. So we're uh, we just we stay busy with the family. I like being outside, fishing, being on the river, just enjoying this beautiful uh, area that I live in. Just uh, love being home, you know. And uh, but at the same time, you know, going to Nashville, I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, you know, knowing that uh, I'm serving with a great group of individuals, I can I can assure everyone that that may hear this podcast that we all work very hard. And unlike uh, Washington D.C., we're able to work together. And we have we may get into it sometimes on the on the house floor, maybe in the halls of, <laughs> of Cordell Hall. But I, but I can assure everyone that we, you know, that's business. But when it comes down to respect and and uh, taking, I, I take, I'd get the show off my back to, to 98 other members of the house and, and uh, 33 members of the Senate. And I tell you that we've got a good group working and, and, and everybody's got their minds right and, 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 and that they represent their, uh, their constituents and they do a, a great job of it. And it's an honor. And I appreciate and thank everyone that allows me to serve, uh, in that capacity. I think my constituents and the people of my district and, and just, uh, I just try to be as transparent as possible. Yeah. Uh, with everyone I talk to, and uh, just I'm looking forward to getting started the session. I want to miss being home. I want to miss my family, but at the same time, I think that I know that the state of Tennessee and the constituents of the 17th district here in Sevier and Jefferson County deserve someone who cares, and I do. Right. Well, so, and I appreciate you having having me on here as well. Yeah, we we appreciate you taking the time to do this. I mean, we don't always agree with what comes out of, of that process in the legislature. No one, no one's ever going to agree on everything you guys do. But we we do all agree that uh, you know you're you're servants and you do have to t- spend time away from your family. You don't get paid a ton of money to do it. You have other jobs. You have to. Uh, and so I know it's a it's a sacrifice to do it, and we appreciate you doing that. I'd be remiss though if I was uh, on the phone with someone from Severe uh, Severeville, and I didn't ask about uh, your most famous resident uh, from from that part of, of Tennessee, Dolly Parton. Have you ever met Dolly Parton? And if so, how did that go? Please please share with the rest of us. We're dying to know. <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, uh, I have I have met Dolly Parton. All right. she went to the same. She actually went to the same. Uh, elementary school, middle school, as my mother and her sisters. Of course, she was just a little bit. Uh, she graduated a little bit after my mom, but uh, she actually, my grandmother told me this. My my mamma Mildred said that Dolly used to come over and uh, spend the night with my mother's oldest sister, and she used to love eating her biscuits and gravy. Now, whether there's any truth oh, to that, I, like I don't it. know, because that's my mamma Mildred, and sometimes she'd she'd like to just she'd 
she'd like to blow herself a little bit about things, but uh, I'll never <laughs> forget her saying it. But I think Dolly Parton's a Dolly Parton. If you ever meet Dolly Parton, one thing about that lady right there. What you see is what you get. That's, she's that's, not going to sugarcoat anything, and she is she is just a great person, and she's been good to our community, she's good to our state, and uh, just uh, think a lot of her. That's great. That's great. I don't I don't think we're going to fact check you on that story. That's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody, anybody to fact check. They've gone on to a better place right now. <laughs> from Dolly. I don't know if she remember or not. But. Right, right. Well, thanks again, Chairman uh, Farmer, for spending the time with us, and maybe I'll see you up in the hallways uh, sometime in the near future. Appreciate it. It sounds good. I appreciate you having me on. That was Tennessee House District 17's own Representative Andrew Farmer. Chairman Farmer will be presiding over a lot of very important criminal justice legislation this session, so keep up with him on your favorite media outlet. He's also active on Twitter. Just City will do its best to keep you informed of what's going on during the General Assembly as well. Our thanks to Representative Farmer for talking to us during this busy time. As always, thanks to Gilworth and the OAM Network for hosting us and for providing first-class podcast support. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. Special thanks, as always, to Jeff Hewlett for this new version of our theme song, She Got Gone. Of course, Jeff is on Spotify. You can hear the rest of the songs from that album. A lot of good originals on there. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review. If you could, it'll help us build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.